You're listening to the Brown Sign Project podcast. Introducing Meridian Experience from Retail Integration, the leading multi-channel ticketing, retail and membership system for visitor attractions. Working with visitor attractions for over 25 years, Retail Integration have developed the ultimate solution that enables some of Ireland's leading visitor attractions manage every aspect of their business, from ticketing and admissions to merchandising, food and loyalty programs in one single system. Customer experience is at the heart of what we do. Contact us today and let retail integration help you to exceed visitor expectations. We listen, we develop, we deliver. Hello and welcome to the Brown Sign Project, the podcast that focuses on careers of people in the tourist attractions industry. I'm Carlton Gadgetal. And I'm Carly Strawn. In this episode, we're talking to John O'Donoghue from Eagle and Oak Consultancy. John brings a wealth of experience to our conversation. He's going to be talking about his route into cultural heritage and landscapes, but also the importance of people from a variety of backgrounds joining the boards of trustees in the charity sector. It's a really interesting conversation. John has given us some great tips on how he's progressed through the industry, but also how he's really enjoyed working with some great leaders who has helped him shape his consultancy work. And with thanks, of course, to our series sponsors, Retail Integration and Staff Savvy. But now it's time for our chat with John. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Brown Sign Project. Um, hi, Carlton. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, and today with us, we have the lovely John O'Donoghue, um, who is going to tell us a lot about himself and a lot about his quite varied career. Um, so, John, over to you. Give us a little bit of an intro as to, to what you do with your with your time. Um, hi everyone. Hi Carlton and Carly. Um, yeah, so I am now a business development consultant. Um, I work predominantly with the culture, heritage, and landscape sectors. Um, and really, it's it's kind of it's it's quite a new business, but it's drawing from um, dare I say twenty five years of operational experience. So I've, I've been really lucky to work in some of the UK's most amazing attractions, especially within culture, heritage, and landscapes. Um, which has then given me the the experience and the confidence to be able to help other people in quite a different way in this kind of next part of my career. Um, so that keeps me very busy. Excellent. Um, I also, at some point today, we need to discuss the fact that you are a non-executive director on a board of a museum, because I think that will be really interesting to a lot of people yeah. to understand what that does too, because I think that's a real, it feels Absolutely. like a very far off goal I think for a lot of people so yeah. I think we'll get into that a little bit as we sure. talk as well so thank you for that um so without further ado we're going to start some questioning I'm afraid <laughs> oh he's ready he's ready okay he's I'll start I'll start with the first question so um if you can kind of tell us how did you start your industry how did you get into it what was the beginning stages for you um, well, like you've alluded to, my, my career has been varied and that's been the theme all throughout. And I think it is testament to the richness of um, work in the, the era that we're in now is that you can change career quite a bit. And my mum used to say when she was at school, um, she said, you know, she, the, the guidance was basically you can be a teacher or a nurse and that was it. And once you were in that groove, you stuck with it. Um, but actually it was 
Um, you know that long summer holiday between your GCSEs and when you start your A-levels? You know, you, you finish your GCSEs quite early, I think about late June time. So, you, so you've got a massive holiday. And I was actually in the local library, which is weird because I'm not bookish at all. Um, and I saw a poster for my local National Trust property, which was looking for volunteers for that summer. Um, contacted them. I was actually studying, was intending to study history of art and architecture at A-level and, and potentially beyond. Um, and I just thought, Do you know what, actually, that'd be really, really good to work in that sort of place um, and just get some experience. So I contacted them and they said, well, actually, we've got student placements this year. Um, so, you know, do you want to take part in that? So straight away, I'm in a you know, fully functioning visitor attraction. This is back in 1996. And so I was exposed to, you know, the concept of heritage and you know, um, conservation, but also just opening and welcoming people to a historic house. So it started off there. And, you know, to be honest, I thought this is the beginning of my sort of history of our architecture career. But I was 17 and I just thought to myself, OK, do I want to have something this academic at this stage? And I thought about my work, my walk as I walked up from the car park up to the house at Barrington Hall, this place that I worked. Um, and there was this amazing garden, which was dynamic and it was alive and it was a work of art in its own right. And then a really bizarre thing happened. Um, a leaflet got accidentally delivered to our office, which was about the apprenticeship scheme that the National Trust ran. Um, so I think it just got it got, just got bundled in with some posts from another office, and it was it was actually in the in the waste paper bin. So I saw it, pulled it out, and just thought this looks really good. You know, a three year um, apprenticeship with a bit of theory, but a lot of application. And um, to cut a long story short, I applied and I got a position on that. So I became an apprentice wow. guard. Um, That's for cool. Three years. That's amazing. I mean, not many people can say they got their sort of break in their career out of the bin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, no jokes about scraping the barrel. <laughs> oh, I've definitely scraped worse barrels than, uh, than mm. just picking a leaf out of a bin in my career. Um, so you said, you know, you got this apprenticeship and then yeah. did you did you then not do A-levels? Did you go on to get a degree? How did that kind of pan out in terms of your studying? Uh that then became um, so the history of art and arch architecture thing definitely just became a hobby and an interest, um, and that's where I guess probably I was quite bookish in as much as I did kind of continue my interest in that, um, but not to an academic level. Um, so I I did the three year apprenticeship in 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 gardening. That was my qual. In fact, it's the only thing I'm actually qualified in. Experience in lots of things, but but the only thing I'm qualified in is that. Um, and that then took me that after the, the three years, I then went to, to work in another garden. Um, bearing in mind any, any of these sort of places that you work, you are never just a member of the gardens team. You know, you are lending your hand, uh, turning hand to all sorts of other activities as well, whether it's interpretation, learning, that sort of thing. And you're always interacting with visitors. You know, the number of times that people have said to me about weeding, it's a bit like painting the fourth bridge. Um, or you can come and do mine. It's just brilliant. You know, you just learn to treat every every time someone says that. <laughs> the first time anyone said that. Oh yeah. Oh, I think there there should there could be a course like a like a qualification in laughing yeah. wholeheartedly yeah, at the yeah. unfunny things that visitors say to you. Exactly. <laughs> the, it'd be funny the first time. Yeah. But it, it's, also, it's also the little things you learn, like. Um, when you walk around somewhere, even when you're in your civvies on your day off, when you walk around somewhere, 
the pace of how quickly you walk lets, other, lets visitors know that you work there. So they ask you questions and you just think, how did you know? Um, so, yeah, so I, I then went to work in another garden um, where I did encompass more activities such as learning, um, events, that sort of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer in the kind of concept of fish and ponds. Um, you know, do you want to be a, a big fish in a little pond or do you want to be a little fish in a big pond? And I actually consider myself quite lucky that inadvertently I've never worked in a massive destination. Although I've worked for a massive um, charity like the National Trust, I've never worked in a huge place where... There are just so many people that you can get lost in it. Um, and then I think it was about 2008, 2009, the place where I was working in Cornwall, it had a really high turnover for a period of Vista Services Managers. And my head gardener at the time, a wonderful guy called, called Tom Clark, um, who's now Exbury, um, he just spoke to the overall property manager and said, look, you know, John is really enthusiastic about diversifying his career. Why don't you give him a shot at it? They arranged a secondment which was wonderful so actually during that year I actually did um two days a week as a visitor services manager and then three days a week gardening and that to be honest I think blended careers are the perfect thing because you've got all of the the number crunching the problem solving the complexity of a visitor and commercial related business and then you get to solve that in your head when you are in a wonderful natural setting with the most amazing plants so it was it was a really great year. And I was really lucky that by the end of the year, I'd proven myself, I'd got enough um, of, of the necessary skills in order to be appointed to that job full time. And, you know, huge credit to the person that appointed me because he did take a leap of faith. Yeah. Um, but then had a plan in place for, well, we, we both had a plan once I got that job to kind of fill in those gaps around finance and project management and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's, it, it's, it's the experience I've had is that, I think I do have quite a lot of energy and I think that people have seen that energy and that enthusiasm and they've then thought, you know what, this needs capitalising on, this guy can be springboarded to something. So I think there are there are about six or seven wonderful people throughout my career who have just been that those people who have thought, you know what, I can help this guy move on a little bit. But they've also hopefully seen something in me that has been worth moving on. And I do think there's a lot to be said for the kind of old adage that you you can't train enthusiasm, you can't train personality. Yeah, you can absolutely. train skill. Yeah. You know, you can teach somebody to to run a profit and loss account. You can teach somebody to do month end accounting or marketing or whatever it might be. But if you've no enthusiasm for it, or you've no natural kind of want to learn, actually, that's not a thing that you can train people on. And I think if you can take that along with you you find some really great people along the way and you upskill them as you go I think it's a really great um career track for people to get into completely completely um so you talked about your career so far which is very very varied very blended um let's talk about your studies kind of you've kind of briefly spoke about this but did you come out with a qualification or did you just kind of just go straight through this uh, um the route of being trained on site in a, in a location i so i i mean my my school i loved primary school secondary school i really struggled with um really really struggled i mean i was um an undiagnosed dyslexic um in fact i only discovered i was dyslexic age 38 um, really wow. yeah, yeah 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 and it was i mean you know i think things have moved on a lot i think there's a lot more that needs to be done 
Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I was humiliated by teachers at school. So yeah. it was really, really tough, um, which I think is why such a practical um, subject such as gardening was was really good for me. Um, but yeah, so the course is basically, I mean, the apprenticeship was 10 weeks in five two-week blocks at college where you study the science behind gardening, which was amazing. You know, it was absolutely amazing. And I was only explaining to someone the other day why um, a plant can, from the same part of it, produce roots and flowers and and, and leaves. Um, so the science was fantastic. And to be honest, some of it echoed what I had learned at school. I just didn't see the application of it at school. Um, so it wasn't all hell during during secondary school but yeah so I did I mean we we studied um we did NVQs in level two and three in immunity horticulture um but there was also an element of business within that as well um because essentially even if your career was was going to remain within gardening as a head gardener um you needed to understand you know certain aspects of finance administration project management so there was some cover there and we also did um the RHS qualification as well so the Royal Horticultural Society qualification um which was really really good that's that's it's now called the level two it was called the general certificate so i came out with i think 240 points um in the in the system um and you know then there were some people that went on to do a q diploma and that sort of thing but i mean i was i was quite clear that i wanted to gain more experience and to be more immersed rather than to study more but i think i've got i've got a quite a curious brain anyway so i think I just pick things up. I'm lucky that I just pick yeah. things up and also probably ask a lot of annoying questions. I like that as well. So I do the same thing um, as well. I just want to kind of touch up on the dyslexia part, which is really interesting because I know some of our listeners are dyslexic. Do you think that being dyslexic is a, a hindrance or a gift in our industry based on your experience? I, th- I think, to be honest, it, I mean, when I was diagnosed, that what the route that 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 um, took me there was I had three massive spreadsheets that I had to process, uh, and none of them actually fitted on my screen on my laptop in my in my then job um, at once, and I just got overwhelmed by it. And I spoke to a colleague who could clearly see that I, I was a bit um, stressed and anxious, and he himself was dyslexic, but was diagnosed at school. And he just said to me, said, you know, do you think you might be dyslexic? For me, dyslexia had a stigma. You know, it was when I was at school, if people were dyslexic, they were stigmatized. Um, Although there were some people who I could see almost flourished with it somehow. Um, And so I I got a a proper diagnosis. And the first person I told, um, a wonderful colleague, Mandy Naylor. See, I remember all the people that have helped me in my career. She just said to me without batting an eyelid, she just said, have you read the Dyslexia Advantage? Um, and I looked it up online and and saw that it's basically the concept behind the book is that some of our greatest entrepreneurs, some of our greatest innovators are people who we now know to be dyslexic or we know are dyslexic. And I, I just think, you know, I mean, to, and I, you know, his controversial thing. I never actually read the book. I just just knowing that was enough to say, do you know what? This is an advantage. And I think what it enabled me to do is to say to employers beyond that is to say look I have dyslexia um it means you'll get this so you'll get wonderful pattern spotting you'll get great communication you'll get really good strategic thinking but you will get the odd spelling mistake and you cannot overwhelm me with lots of information at once you know big reports without an executive summary forget it um but I think (laughs) that is 
you know what? Who does flourish with those things? So, I mean, I, there's a charity made by Dyslexia, which is such a wonderful advocate for recognizing the strength and, and, and you know, using those strengths of dyslexia, but also celebrating it as well. Um, so I think I think it I think to be honest, to answer your question, yes, I think it is an advantage. I think as long as a workplace is inclusive and recognizes that that people, you know, aside from dyslexia, people operate in lots of different ways, you know, play to people's strengths. Why wouldn't you? Absolutely. You preach, mate. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, love that answer um, on there. So, thank you so much for sharing that um, sharing that information with us. And that kind of leads me up to our next question of your why. It's kind of like, why do you do what you do? You know, what motivates you to do what you do? Um, this is something that I've thought about really carefully before I set up my business. So, not just in terms of um, what did I want to do, but also how would I convey that to to potential customers. Um, and to be honest, I, th I think that in the UK, I think we have an amazing diversity and richness of visitor attractions. Um, I and mean, I've just moved recently to rural Herefordshire. It's actually where I grew up. Um, I've lived in all parts of, of, of the UK, but I've just moved to rural Herefordshire. And, you know, you just straight away, I've got local, a wonderful local cheese farm, which is open to the public. You know, we've got local cider museums. You go further afield, we've got fantastic, you know, heritage offer, national trust places. Um, I go up the train line to Manchester. I've got an amazing museums off of there. Got into Cardiff, fantastic outdoor places, um, you know, South Wales. So, you know, we've got such a richness of visitor attractions, and yet we cannot take that for granted because, you know, we have seen them come and we've seen them go. And I think the three things that I, I champion the most is authenticity, sustainability, and creativity. You know, these places... They all have something that is authentic to them, which just needs to be turned up. It needs to be presented in, in different ways in order to make them sustainable. And, you know, and I mean, that word sustainability is in its broadest sense. It's financially sustainable. It's environmentally sustainable. It's sustainable in terms of its relevance to people. Um, and that last point about creativity, I, I just get I, one of my bugbears is when you see certain things doing the rounds one one attraction will commission a wooden play fort and then all of a sudden and in, in that place may be a castle and then all of a sudden you know a georgian palladian mansion has got a, a play fort as well and it's all got them and you know I, it's great i can see why but i just think come on let's be a bit more creative if, you know if that is the answer what is the question so i i think that creativity is really really important and i get really I guess frustrated, but also saddened when I see visitor attractions stretching their resources even further to add on more when actually what they've got just needs a bit of tweaking, a bit of thinking differently um, in order to get lots more value out of it. So I think that's my why. It's it's just the it's seeing that there, there can be so much efficiency, which can create so much value and so much so many different experiences, so much magic. Yeah, I think you. that's an interesting point as well about like creativity is it's not necessarily about doing something mm. new to you. Like I I always say to people, you know, when we, we talk about um, technology for the sake of technology, is that at some point everybody will say, oh, we'll just get an app. 
you know, we'll just get an app for that, you know, like you're saying, and that could be anything that could be, we'll just get a wooden play center. That'll bring people in. We'll just get a, a, a craft fair. That'll bring people in. Like whatever the thing is that you think is going to be this, this problem solver. When actually you've got a great offering already, just mm-hmm. you haven't updated it for a number of years, or you maybe just haven't given it the love that it needs. And yeah, I think that's a, you don't, people don't need to reinvent the wheel all the time, but they need to sort of think about who they are and where that authenticity comes from. Absolutely. Definitely. And it, it was really interesting. I mean, when I when I worked for the National Trust, um, there were a few places that quite literally just changed the name to which they were referred to. So it might be you're called so-and-so house and you might get maybe 50,000 visitors of a certain audience type but then calling themselves so-and-so house and garden and recognising the 19 acres of amazingly manicured, beautiful, seasonally changing gardens then brings in an extra 100,000 people of different audiences, including families. And it's just amazing how, you know, all that's happened is you've literally just changed a sign and a web address and a title on a website. It is literally just as simple as that sometimes. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think you are right. It's sometimes just a case of, making it appeal more to a certain audience or making it just more appropriate for a certain audience. It doesn't have to be a huge, uh, a huge change of what you do or how you do it. Do you spend hours creating your rotors and then spend days constantly adjusting them? We have the solution. At Staff Savvy, we specialise in shift schedules and timesheet solutions for visitor attractions. Easily manage multiple complex teams of permanent, casual, freelance and volunteer staff across different locations and disciplines. With fast communication features, automatic compliance tools, training management and simple timesheet tools, Staff Savvy has been used and trusted by organisations such as V&A Dundee, the Southbank Centre and the Royal Albert Hall with great cost-saving benefits. Visit us at staffsavvy.com forward slash brown sign projects to learn more and schedule a demo of our magic rotor button. You're listening to the Brown Sign Project podcast. So you you alluded to top three within that discussion. And I, so we, we're going to take it a bit broader. What would your top three tips be for working in the attractions industry in general? Like what what do you think people need or what would you like to share? We talked about, you know, thinking about our younger selves as well. And when we were getting into the industry, what what do you want to tell your younger self about it? I think I mean, when I first started in, in my career, it was for me, it was all about content. You know, it was all about pursuing my interest. Like I said, I was really interested in history of art and architecture and then gardens. And so I just wanted to indulge more of that myself and the great thing is that as time has gone on, it's been about people. It's about helping other people access that, other people benefit from it. And not just in a visitor sense, but a community sense as well. Um, and so I guess my, my top three tips would be in, in in no particular order. And the first one is that I'm picking is it's really cliched, but it is know your audience and also know what they come for. You know, use whatever segmentation tool you can, even if it's just literally saying it's families and independent adults. Who are your audiences? When do they come? And what do they come for? And ask yourself and others within your organisation, you know, what do we offer? What if, if you can put someone on the spot and say, right, describe in one sentence what we offer, then you know, make sure that you're really, really clear what, what makes people come to you, but also what makes people come back. Um, because it, it might be two different things. 
So it's just that understanding, that consciousness of your of your visitor attraction. I think the second thing is, um, and this sounds really Harry Potter, but it applies to all visitor attractions, um, is know and protect the magic um, and its surroundings. And by this, I think every attraction has got one area. If you, if you were to do a heat map of where people spend the longest amount of time, where they engage with each other the most, there will be a place which is your magic and it'll have kind of a little bit of a halo of surroundings to it. Um, if I think about the SS Great Britain in, in Bristol, I, I just love the fact I went I went there as a child and it had the most wonderful little, you know, typewritten notices. It had text everywhere. It was a very classic um, traditional visitor attraction. And going to it after its massive investment and really creative evolution, going into the ship itself and the fact that the flywheel, that the replica flywheel in that engine is actually turning and I just thought to myself, the number of people that will have tried to stop that happening, budget, health and safety, you name it, there were so many people who tried to stop that happening. And it, and it still could be a case of, do you know what, it costs too much to let the flywheel rotate, but absolutely protect it. Um, if you think about the Anik Garden, there's that wonderful cascade with the water that, 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 um, that comes down it. And, you know, that is such an important, it's the first thing that people see, it's the thing that people photograph, you can go and I think get... Um, tractor little toy tractor buckets of water and move it elsewhere but you know make sure that magic is always there make sure that everyone on the site understands the value of it and let's say for example you've got to close it for a couple of days to clean it think of a really creative way to make that to pivot that experience you know can people get into it and, and help you clean it help you brush the all the algae off and what have you and you know the wallace collection in london that wonderful art collection you've got um frank and painting the swing you know it's it, for me it's the epicenter of there but that is the magic and just understanding where your magic is what it is and just making sure it's always functioning it's always delivering what it needs to do and that the surroundings of it are preparing for it and I guess my last tip um, is the thing that I see more and more and more, especially now in my um, in my role as a consultant, is the importance in this sector of being an, a great negotiator, because you will have things that you want to do, and people will have things they want to do, and you will you will rarely be able to do just that. You know, there will always be an element of you know listening to other people. Um, sharing information for you've got using different approaches to influence people but I just think that negotiating is a really really important thing I mean there is so much potential for conflict within visitor attractions you know it's health and safety versus operations it might be curatorial versus events um, it's just negotiating rather than have this kind of adversarial thing so learning how to negotiate to understand to listen to people to share information to be really clear about what you want what you want as well I think is is one of the skills that's really important to any level in a visitor attraction. That is some amazing free top tips. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so good. Yeah, those, uh, those are the free, Carlton. The rest of it, people have to come and pay for. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. At the end, we'll we'll, we'll talk about where, where people can contact you for that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, that kind of leads me on to, um, I'm, I'm going to get some more stuff out of you, you know, for this next question, uh, which is about leadership. So we need great leaders to kind of run these attractions. Um, but what do you think makes a good leader in our industry? Um, I know you've got a varied career, 
so hopefully you'll be able to share some great information with us. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed leadership positions. I think both being in them, but also I really enjoyed it when I worked for great leaders. Um, and I think that, again, I mean, I'm gonna, I like three, so I, I'm going to give three um, characteristics of great leaders. I think the first one is definitely empathy. Um, is you know walking in the shoes of your team, your visitors, but also people like your neighbours. Um, you know, does your attraction make a lot of noise? Does it attract a lot of peak traffic? You know, what's it like to be on the periphery of your attraction as well as to be immersed within it? And I think you know, it's it's that thing when you're a leader in in, in any sort of visitor attraction, you're doing that sort of probably happening quite a lot at the moment. And those those start of season briefings, you're getting all of your team in together. You know, it's just. The empathy is really important in thinking about, hang on a minute, I know what I want to say to them, but what is their mindset? You know, are they still thinking about the fact that at the end of last year, you stopped biscuits in a staff room? Um, or are they thinking about, you know, you still haven't fixed the broken roller coaster or whatever? Um, so I think it's just it's walking in the shoes of your team and just understanding, you know, and I think nothing helps this better than actually undertaking those roles yourself so back to the floor days I think are really really important and I think in my experience it's not necessarily okay so if I'm going back to the floor I understand how to use the till or I understand you know how what how the car park operates it's more I understand what energy this role needs and the resilience the endurance that you have to have both at the really busy times, but also at the really quiet times, you know, when you're despondent about lack of visitors or whatever. So I think empathy is the, is the first one. Um, I think the second characteristic is being a really great facilitator. Um, and it is basically working to bring people together and to facilitate them as a group, um, you know, bring together diverse people to solve problems, to take opportunities. You know, it's, it's those characteristics that I talked about before about you know listening about with um with negotiation it's it's listening it's reflecting it's managing great conversations and like i said there are so many tensions within visitor attractions that facilitating those conversations um you know is, is really important so that everyone feels heard everyone feels they've shared their perspective um and it kind of brings me nicely onto my last characteristic which is about decision making um, I think it's really important to make bold, sensitive, but informed decisions and just to keep sharing them, you know, just to communicate them really, really well. You know, we, we don't need as leaders, we don't need to have all the answers ourselves. And I think sometimes where a leader has gone into an attraction where maybe they don't have the subject knowledge of that attraction, so maybe somebody running an animal park or someone running a, an art gallery not having that subject knowledge can sometimes be more helpful than someone who's gone in as the expert because it makes that empathy a little bit more difficult, putting yourself in the shoes of somebody who does not come with that subject interest. But, you know, you can always bring in expertise and advice. I'm not just plugging my business there. Um, but you can always bring in that expertise, but use it to be decisive. And that's the key thing is taking all the information that you're getting from your team from data, from all sorts of things, from advice, um, and using it to be decisive. And I think there's a real difference between being decisive and bold and having an, a big ego. You know, you need to leave your egos at the door. There's absolutely a role for pride, but not arrogance. You know, pride in what your team do, pride in your attraction, I think is fantastic. But, you know, egos, arrogance, that's got to be left at the door. And I think a good 
kind of example of that is if you ever see like really amazing chefs, but you don't ever want them running a restaurant, right? Is that you can be an amazing subject matter expert, but it doesn't actually mean you'd be a make a very good leader and vice versa. You know, you you don't have to be a subject matter expert to be a leader. And I think that is really vital. Um, And I really liked what you said about making a decision, because I think a lot of people when they get into, especially if it's, you know, your, your kind of first senior roles and you're worried about decision making or being wrong, that actually sometimes making a decision and learning from it, if it goes wrong, is still a million times better than sitting back and never making a decision and never really, that's not leadership at all. I think that's really vital. Yeah. Before we um, move on with our next question, I want to ask you about your director. Um, no, you, what, what what is your role on the board <laughs> of directors? Because I think that will be a question for a lot of people is, actually, you know, I've kind of heard this term bandied around. I don't really know what it means. Is it paid? Is it unpaid? Is it? Can you tell us a bit more about that? So a um, li- little bit of a controversial opinion. I think that we have in the, especially in the, in the charity sector, we've got a lot of work to do on evolving um, boards of trustees. I think that traditionally the role is seen as is something that's, that where the eligibility is um, is for older, maybe retired people who have had a whole career and then they've got spare time in order to be a trustee. And, and, that's, and that's great. You know, it provides those roles, which are really important for guiding charities. But it doesn't mean that you've necessarily got the diversity. You haven't got people who may be earlier in career and that sort of thing. And so for me, when I work with a new client, the first question I want to understand is what is the alignment between your board of trustees and the chair of the board of trustees, your director or your CEO, your leadership team and the, the operational delivery team. How aligned are all those people? And, you know, what I'm looking for is maybe someone saying, yeah, okay, well, they are all aligned and here are examples of it. Sometimes you might get um, uh, no answer, which kind of almost speaks volumes. And sometimes there, is, there are actually real tensions between those those different communities. Um, and unfortunately, I have experienced that in, in a few places. So myself and um, a few colleagues, we decided, right, if you can't beat and join them. So we, we we just said, we're going to go and join boards of um, various attractions, various institutions. So I was really lucky that I quite soon after that pledge saw a non-executive director um, role for the um, commercial development committee for the museum of the home in, in London um, and applied for it and had a proper interview process, which is really good. It's really good to know that, you know, this wasn't just anyone who volunteers um, can do this. And so it's been a year now that I've been on that commercial development committee, which is just brilliant. And I love the Museum of the Home. Um, I'm really, really passionate. I was only only there actually last night um, at an event, which, which and it, I, it's just great to have that, that not, it's not a consultant role. It's not an employee role, but it's that sort of support, challenge, critical friends role to an institution, but also just to feel that pride, absolutely. And to know that you can play a part in, recognizing those achievements but also in um in steering and guiding um the team and supporting them in 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 problem solving and that sort of thing so i would i would recommend you know if if you have the time and make sure you do have the time because it is about things like 
reading, and I'm really thankful for this, not reading huge reports, um, going back to the dyslexia thing, but, you know, it's it's reading papers and just make, being informed, having informal contact with with the your, your museums or your um, institution as well, and just building those relationships. But, you know, if you've got the time, it is such an enriching thing to do. And boards of trustees need, I mean, like, this is a... Um, non-executive director role rather than a trustee role, but boards generally need as much diversity as possible. The most diversity of lived experience, and especially if you can represent your your various communities um, and your potential and your existing audiences in your board, I think it's really, really important. So yeah, I, I love that role. It's really, really good. And it also, you know, in a world of being a freelancer, it is my my anchor now. It's my in the year. It, you know, the, my interactions with the museum at the home are my anchor points throughout the year. So um, I can thoroughly recommend it. So visit the museum in the home. It's free to enter. It's all about the, the biggest universal theme. You know about us at home and actually tragically those of us that don't have homes. But it's yeah, it's a great place, and I'm really proud to support it. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm just. I think a lot of people sort of like you say that. They maybe don't see themselves represented on a board and so they think well maybe it's not for me and I think you know we talked before we we started reporting about if you can't you know if you don't know that it's there you can't do it you know if you don't know a job exists then you can't get there and I think the same goes for if you if you can't see yourself represented then it, it sort of puts you know a, a bit of a stopper with people to think maybe this isn't a job for me. Yeah, completely. And I think it's really interesting because when you, if you are an operator, a manager within an attraction, um, you know, even if you're in a leadership role, you have a lot of influence, sometimes direct influence over the way that attraction operates. I think the dif- the difference about being on a board is that it, it is arm's length. You know, you know, you're you're there very regularly, you're uh, very irregularly. Your contact is is actually quite minimal, and your influence is minimal. So it's it's a really good exercise in encouraging those skills within you of, you know, of negotiating and influencing, but also just listening. You know, what's it like here? Um, I was at a conference with one of the museum home team of the home team recently, and you know, it was great. It was full of inspiration, and we were talking about you know how great. And what are you going to take away from the conference? And then I caught up with her yesterday, and it's like you know, when you get back to work, there is that thing of you know, you've got your emails, you've got your team asking you questions, so it's really great to encourage that empathy as well about, okay, so what's it actually like for people who are on the ground operating these wonderful places? That's amazing. So we've talked about your past and sort of your current career and, and where, where you've been. And I guess now our discussion needs to turn to where, where are you going? Where, where is everything heading? So we're going to get our, our crystal ball out, <laughs> talk about you know the role that you do today as a, as a consultant, but also maybe thinking about the roles that you do um, on boards or, or what you see sort of happening in the museums how do you think the sector will change sort of within the next five to ten years and your job might track alongside that and do you think there's a, a any sort of technology advancement involved in that or sort of what what does the the future hold for for John I think it's I think it's exciting I think it's full and but I guess the answer I'd love to give is that in the future my role will not be needed is that every attraction will be performing so well it won't need people like me i would i honestly would love that to be the case you know and there's there are other things as you've seen my career has been varied i could turn my hands to, to other things i'll find other ways to earn my bacon um but yes yeah, it joking apart i think that um they're especially in the next five years 
we're going to see a lot of places are going to have differences and in many cases reductions in their funding. Um, and so I think being more creative, leaning on your authenticity um, for you know, generating more support, more um, more raised income, more earned income, I think is going to be really, really key. Um, because I think funding will be different, but also, like I said, in many cases, it will be reduced. So organisations, attractions will need to be more creative. I think also, you know, we are, so much of our experience now is online. You know, we are... I think there was a time when, you know, we saw ourselves, we saw maybe the, the, the way that people would interact with broadcast media as being absolutely far apart from the way that people would engage with a visitor attraction. And now there is actually a lot of blends between the two. You know, there's some great partnerships between those two as well. So I think that the amount of competition, you know, I talked earlier on about the richness and the diversity of visitor attractions. There is also a lot of competition. So I think that um, there is that as well. So it's going to be quite a challenging landscape. But I think, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think it will it will prompt a lot of innovation. And um, so I think that my my work in terms of supporting attractions to be, you know, to, to use their authenticity, to become sustainable and to do that in creative ways, I think that I'm going to have, um, luckily... <laughs> for my bank balance I'm gonna and for my for my own survival I'm gonna have quite a bit of work but I think you you asked about technology and and I think you know what we will see I guess this this comes back to the dyslexia thing as well what we will see is if you take if you go back 10-15 years to a visitor attraction you know if you wanted to know about your visitor patterns you almost had to get the till roll out and just see okay so at 10 o'clock these people came and then at 12 o'clock those people came you know and then you had to do a separate you know clipboard survey of you know what did you think of your experience here today on a one to five you know all that self-selecting stuff and then you had to you had no sight of did the same person who bought the gift day ticket at, at the admissions then buy a cup of coffee and then donate five quid in a, in a tin and i think what what COVID and the pandemic has really accelerated is us engaging digital more. But I think the next iteration of that will be that we'll integrate that more. And we will stop thinking about management information, but we'll actually use systems to give us business intelligence. What that will mean is that us as humans, we will then use the that business intelligence to be creative, to be bold, to be to have fun, basically, in evolving the experiences that we offer people. You know, we, we won't have to do all that number crunching. We won't have to do all that measuring. It'll be there for us. We'll know what the temperature is of our visitor attraction. Quite, you know, not not literally, probably will know that. But you know, we'll know what people are loving, what they're not, what they're not loving. We'll know what could make things different. And that may seem a bit big brother, but I think most of this is kind of anonymized data. It's just understanding quality in order that you can increase quality so i think that's what, what we'll see a lot of in in the future which i think is a really exciting place so we'll be able to apply a lot of creativity to to the future which which is you know both essential survival but also it is um it is something that i think is is is, is going to be fun as well and i think you know the future of the of the attractions industry whereas maybe it might have been quite singular in as much as there were singular roles. You know, you were a curator, you were a, you know, you, you worked in animal care and in a zoo or whatever. I think now roles are much more, there are many more laterals, many more different strands to a role, which is really exciting. And I think that means that 
you, you can shift between roles, but also that when you get to senior positions, if that's what you want, um, if you get to kind of leadership positions, you've got really rich experience. And, you know, you can be that, that kind of person who brings together the whole of your attraction, which is, it just, yeah, it, it's a source of huge richness and, and hopefully, like I said, pride. Yeah, it's brilliant. And, and you know, that that's the, the technology piece is, is really my ballpark and what you're saying about, you know, you can, data for data's sake is useless. Actually, what we want to do is give it to a person who can interpret it and make decisions on it and come up with, you know, it, we we talked um, a number of years ago on a, on a project I, I was working on about if you took, there was a, a, a theme park that took the temperature of the day and the amount of people who came in between a certain point and they could tell whether or not to open ice cream carts, you know, and it, yeah. and and you sort of go, but I sort of know that in my heart, I can sort of stand in the park and look at how many people there are and judge the temperature. But actually, can I flick a switch that says, hey, in advance, this is how busy you're going to be today. You yeah. should definitely get those carts out and actually improve your visitor experience because the, the system can tell you the temperature and the volume, but it's not going to necessarily get you like over the, the threshold to, to make something more interesting. Yeah. And I think, I think to be honest, Carly, I think my, my watchword is investment and it's proportionate investment because more fool the places that say, do you know what? We're too small to do digital because there will be a solution for you that will be proportionate to your revenue or to your size of operation or to your visitors, um, your visitor numbers. Um, and, you know, I, just understanding, if you look at big business of any sort that generates revenue, a percentage of that revenue will be what they invest in digital um, each year. That That's the way that everything is going. And yeah, it, there are still people who are, you know, maybe not digital natives, but it, it, the trajectory is that most people engage digitally and also digital engagement funny enough can actually create some really good analog experiences um some really good offline experiences so i think it's really important that understanding of um of investment and understanding proportionality and there are some great organizations i mean i was at the association for cultural enterprises conference recently and it was really really great to see um companies who are working with those integrations and to see um attractions that are taking these opportunities with investment but again it's proportionate it's not you know multi-million pounds for a, for a small museum that has forty thousand people a year and free admission you know it's it's there's wonderful proportionate stuff there but it's just you know can we please move on from the abacus unless the abacus is is the best item in your collection in which case absolutely don't move on from it yeah make the most of your abacus is what we're saying yeah, exactly. it's quite <laughs> fun actually isn't it <laughs> excellent um well, John, we are we're going to start wrapping up. But first of all, I want to say, is there anything else you want to share with us? Um, we had some really good discussion about sort of bringing on the next generation of of people and sort of the the early days of your career, which I think is really nice. Um, if there's anything you want to add to that, speak now or forever hold your peace. Essentially, <laughs> I think I think that hopefully what I've talked about there is a clear message, which is about variety and and richness and what have you and you don't need to be in this sector you don't need to be singular you can you can literally dart around um you know get the experience and do enough you know do, do engage enough with your area in order to get experience and, and skills and if need be qualifications as well 
Um, but there is such a richness there. But also it's, it's about being curious, being nosy. You know, if you work in commercial and attraction, go and see what other areas are doing and, and vice versa. Um, you know, be curious and be really social within the attraction that you work in. Um, but I think also that that point I made at the start about fish and ponds is really important about, you know, I mean, a, a lot of people you might want to go and work for you know, Warwick Castle or the V&A or something. But actually, you know, your little attraction down the road might be the best place to start because there might be things you learn there because, you know, your role includes emptying the bins, answering the phones, flipping the burgers, all that sort of thing. Um, and it's through that you get that diversity of experience that you then remember 20 years later when, you know, you are um, a manager of a function and you know, you're, you're, you're practicing that wonderful empathy about what it's like to, to be on the front line. Awesome. Thank you so much for all that information. Um, I know you mentioned earlier you gave us some free top tips and, you know, if, if you want some more, you have to go and pay for it. <laughs> I, remember, I haven't forgot that. Um, however, um, how do we get in contact with you if you want to kind of, if people want to reach out to you? Um, where's, where can we find you digitally? So I'm, um, thank you, Carson, for <laughs> that, that plug. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn um, as John O'Donoghue, um, but I'm also on my website. My, my consultancy business is called Eagle and Oak. Um, and the reason why is because the eagle soars and then focuses when it needs to, but the oak is that kind of rooted strength that supports loads of biodiversity. So it's a, uh, um, I'd love to say it took loads of coffee, you know, loads of flip charts, bean bags, and a, and a, and a you know, tens of thousands of pounds worth of brand agency. I literally came up with that myself, and I love it. But yeah, my business is called Eagle and Oak, so it's eagleandoak.co.uk is my website. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, I hope you all enjoyed it. John, thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you both. Thank you for listening to The Brown Sign Project. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Paul Griffiths, the director of Paints Hill Park Trust. Thanks again to our series sponsors, Retail Integration and Staff Savvy. We just wouldn't be able to do it without them. And The Brown Sign Project was edited by Paul Tyler. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Brown Sign Pod, and you can find us on LinkedIn too.